Yo, 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 welcome to Crate 808, the podcast that in 2021 brought you the series looking at the greatest three album runs in 90s hip hop. But today we break open that vault once again for volume two, looking at not just the best hip hop runs in the golden era of the 90s, but of all time. And to start, we have a huge body of work to dig into as we'll be tracking the evolutionary arc of the one and only Jay Diller, working through his albums from Welcome to Detroit to Rough Draft, Don't nuts and The Shining. And joining us on this journey is the esteemed writer Dan Charnas, the author of Diller Time, which is quite simply one of the best books ever written on James Yancey. So without further ado, let's get into it. Today, we dive back into the greatest three album runs in hip hop history. And today is a big one because we are talking Dilla Dog, Jay Dilla with writer, professor, author. Can we say New York Times bestselling author yet, Dan? You can say it, actually. This will be the first time. <laughs> New York Times bestselling author Dan Charnas is in the house. And I'm sure as most of the heads who listen to this show know, Dilla Time, the book is out and it is ruled ruling timelines in 2022 congratulations man thanks man thanks but it's it's nice coming into like your space feels like home territory <laughs> you know where we can really really nerd out and yeah. talk about uh, you know, James Yancey. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about Dilla's three album runs and they can go all over the place. You can go to Fantastic, you can go to The Shining, but I'll try to pick three here that I thought would work quite well just talking about Dilla and maybe a few things that haven't been discussed about Dilla as much. Uh, so we're going to talk about Welcome to Detroit, Rough Draft in the Middle, Donuts and The Shining. We're going to go in, but before we do, Dan, I've got to ask you, I'll ask everyone, what's the least hip hop thing you've done in the last 24 hours, man? Oh, man. What's the least? Everything, being who I am, everything I do is hip hop. Even when I make dinner, you know, <laughs> even when I walk my son to and from school, mm-hmm. there's there's a little hip hop in it. Maybe watching Seinfeld bloopers, I think probably. That is my sort of my, my comfort, you know, my, my guilty pleasure comfort mm-hmm. zone where I just forget everything and I just, you know, watch these craft people uh, crack themselves up. Bloopers is a great way to go. Oh, it's the Office yeah, UK man. bloopers are my go-to. Cutting into it, I think for me, you hear all these different versions of why people love Jay Diller, what he right. did different to everyone else. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of myth around all of that. There's a lot of technical speak that maybe the layman doesn't get and gets bored of hearing about two time and four time and all this. Uh, I remember when Questlove said, he said it brilliantly. It's like, give, what was it? Give a baby two tequila shots, put a drum machine in front of it. And I thought that was a really interesting straight to the part, like heart of it, get kind of an idea of how weird it is to be this good. As there is all this technical talk to it for the layman, what was the actual impact of Dilla on music and hip hop music, especially? Well, Dilla was one of a generation of hip hop producers in the 19th 1990s who were excellent at their craft. And he did have, he did come from a particular strain of hip hop production that I sort of nicknamed Beats and Beauty, right? It's a very harmonically driven, lush kind of hip hop production that started, I argue, with, with Q-Tip and Tribe Called Quest, mm-hmm. but that Preem was certainly a part of, that Diamond D was certainly a part of, Large Professor was certainly a part of, uh, and that Dilla was a part of. And when we related to him at being in, in hip hop in the 1990s, we related to him as that, oh, he's just a dope, incredible, dope producer from Detroit, you know, this mm. bang beats, you know, uh, the Uma, Q-Tip, part of that collective. But in the latter part of his career, and then since his death, he has had sort of both an outsized kind of sentimentality and worship on one hand, and an outsized 
influence and the worship part has been documented very mm-hmm. well, but the influence and innovation part had not. There wasn't a lot of great language to why Dilla remained this sort of figure who people celebrated and why his drum machine is in the Smithsonian. And I, and I know all the emotional reasons for that. The story of his death in 2006 um, is a lot of pathos and mm. a lot of very evocative. He's also symbolic of a forgotten era of, you know, a forgotten producer from a forgotten era of hip hop. Yes. But he actually did change music in a fundamental way an innovation of what I of that's worthy of like a hundred year cycle uh, of centenary proportions, as I've said, and that is that he invented a new time feel, a new way to feel musical time. And so the way that I explain it for the layman is this: European music, for most of its history, uh, rhythm was counted evenly, one and two and three and four, and and that is how music was notated. That is how music was played in the twentieth century in America because of the presence of Africans and their descendants on the continent. There evolved a new time feel that was in some way a, um, a retention of African polyrhythm. So instead of straight, one and two and three and four and it was swung, one and two and three and four and It's uneven instead of even, uneven beats. So our popular music has been populated by these two time fields and the continuum between them, right? Straight, and swung. Our popular music contains examples of both. Like if you listen to Bohemian Rhapsody at around the four minute mark, Mm. Freddie Mercury goes from this mock opera, which is straight time. No, 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 no. Right. And then after he sings for me, right. Then it goes into this rocking, swinging, uneven beat. That's the difference straight and swung. And that didn't change. Even when James Brown did his funk innovations, you could swing funk or you could make it straight. But in 1997, 1998, in a basement in Detroit on a drum machine, James Yancey found a way to collide straight rhythms and swung rhythms, multiple strands of straight and swung elements and put them in conflict with each other so that there was this bit of rhythmic friction, things that didn't seem like they made sense together. We tried to put language to that. Oh, drunken, sloppy, limping, loping stumbling. Yes. That is inaccurate language. It's how we feel. But what he is actually really doing is putting straight rhythms and swung rhythms in, in, in conflict with each other, micro-rhythmic conflict. And that really had not been done before as more than a momentary thing in our popular music. And it might not have been important, except that other programmers started imitating the feel, like high tech, like mm-hmm. uh, the folks who worked at a touch of jazz, Jazzy Jeff's assembly line in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And then traditional musicians like Questlove and uh, D'Angelo and Pino Palladino. Yeah. And then Robert Glasper. So the time field starts to move out into the world in ways that are truly profound. And yet when people start to write about this time feel in the, the teens, JD is like reduced to a footnote or not even talked about at all. That's mad. So as Dan brilliantly broke down Dilla's importance to hip-hop and music as a whole, hearing how Dilla's work impacted other hip-hop greats is just as crucial. Just listen to how Q-Tip, one of JD's biggest mentors, talks about his art and why he inducted James into his production squad, The Uma. Here he is talking to Red Bull Academy about why Dilla's music was so revolutionary. The way he had shit. EQ, the way that it was programmed, the feeling of it was the most authentic 
feeling it. He he was programming it, but it just felt live. The swing of it, you know, his time signature on that, the way that he had like the swing percentages on his beats and shit, the way he had the music partitioned, he had bass where it needed to be. The kick was where it needed to be. The hi-hat was where it was needed. The music, he was just clean. He had an understanding of it that he could manipulate it any way that he wanted to. You know what I mean? But it wasn't just New York where Dilla was making an impression. He also laid an early footprint of his work on the West Coast hip hop scene through the landmark group The Far Side, with instant classics like Drop, Running, and Why firmly establishing his style in the 90s. Dilla's work in off kilter production was seriously making waves. Here's Far Side's founding member Slim Kid Trey breaking down how they first heard Dilla during their work on Lab Cabin California and how the group's volatile dynamic impacted the to be goat producer we were hanging out with q-tip and tip was like yo you know i'm working on the, the mob deep record now you know so i don't really have a lot of time to make a bunch of beats and different things but i got this cat and so we were at his apartment and we was, you know he played the snippet tape for us and man oh man <laughs> i was like we were like yes this is it running the mm-hmm. running loop was there uh the bullshit the bullshit loop and dilla was a different energy like we was we were wild dude and we <laughs> we saw dilla as a calm cool collective guy mm. you know during his time being with us he saw a lot of shit yeah him being with us and understanding us and understanding us as a band and and you know our ups and our downs and our physical fights mm. there's a fight almost every, every other song or so like running wouldn't be running if i didn't fight for it wow running wouldn't be running if somebody didn't get punched <laughs> oh shit snap really yeah how about that wow that's incredible as to where dilla had to come out and say you know dilla was like look man please you guys don't fight he was like you know you oh, guys might favorite band he's like you can have the song however you want it and i was like i'm we're gonna have it exactly how you did it we're not gonna chop it no different way it's gonna be exactly the footprint that you laid down and and that's what it was after that incredible now let's jump back in with dan charnas as he helps pinpoint what the actual feeling is when you hear dilla for the first time and how the man would create oral illusions for his fans to get lost in so the impact then for you as a listener when you hear that because i think it was on yes it was in fantastic volume two you said that uh, this was the inflection point when you get that dilla feel that everyone talks about i wanted to know for you in your words what is that dilla feel what what was that first feeling you got was it uneasiness well for me personally um everybody has their own language put to it and it took me a while to really understand, oh, it's straight and swung against each other. Mm-hmm. That came much later. How I did it as a, as, you know, as just as a fan, Chino XL, and I was a, an A&R executive and producer for Warner Brothers Records. And Chino XL and I flew to Detroit in 1999 to work with JD. In preparation for this, he sent us a beat tape. This is sometime in early 1999. I have also by this time heard Fantastic Volume 2. It hasn't come out commercially yet. I'm just hearing like an advanced CD that his manager gave to me. This beat tape actually that he gave is now called Another Batch. It's referred to on YouTube when you see it as Another Mm -hmm. Batch. We pick Chino's two beats from that beat tape. And we go to Detroit. We make the songs. We fly back to LA. And it isn't until a few months later when we're mixing the album it's got to be late 1999 early 2000 when i'm listening to the mix down of one of the songs don't say a word and i'm having this moment i'm like what what's going on with that hi-hat like is that hi-hat swinging it's something sounded 
off. Okay. So for me, it was something's wrong. Something's off. Yeah. And this is after I've been listening to this thing for months. So I take it into my studio on my digital performer, like a digital audio workstation. And I take the, put the, you know, the, the song in and I line the waveform up with the grid of the time grid of the computer. And I realize that the hi-hats are not swung. They're perfectly straight. What's happening to me is an oral illusion. <laughs> the snare is early. So there is a long, short pattern that, that's happening between the snare and the kick. The snare comes too early. So it's kick snare, kick snare, kick snare, right? But the hi-hats are remaining even, straight. So the quickness of the snare is tricking my mind into thinking that the hi-hats are moving when they're not. It is literally an oral illusion. And then all the questions go, why is he doing that? How is he doing that? Why does it sound good? And then high-tech and quality come out with the blast. And that same thing is happening there. Mm -hmm. And then you're hearing Music Soul Child, Just Friends. Yes. Same thing is happening there. You're hearing Voodoo. So then I begin to hear this influence spread out. Uh, there's another thing I think you said that he, this was a moment in his career. We will get to Welcome to Detroit in a minute, but I was going to say that it's the context of Welcome to Detroit that makes Welcome to Detroit so big for me. And it's all this way you mm. say he was finding the holy in the broken, which mm. I found a really interesting way of putting it mm. where you're finding the imperfections. <laughs> Now that's how you break down the essence of Jay Diller. Now, before we move on, we had to check in with writer, historian, and all-round hip-hop matrix Dart Adams to see why he thinks this album run is an all-timer and how it shaped the career of one of the most beloved musicians of all time. When we think about great three album stretches, one of them that comes to mind, of course, is uh, J.D. J. Dilla, who starts out with his BBE project, Welcome to Detroit. They completely redefined what people thought of him as a producer and made them realize that not only is, it, is he a producer or he's more than a beat maker, he's actually a musician. And that completely took people out of this of the realm of what they were thinking JD or Jake Dilla of the Umma was. And it kind of flipped everything on his head and let everybody know going forward, this is what to expect from him. And then of course, uh, after that, he put out the Rough Draft EP, which was originally on vinyl. And this again was one of those things that made you think, wait a minute, I thought he was X, Y, and Z. And it turns out that he's undefinable. And he again started a bunch of trends and waves. And when people finally were catching up to what he was doing, he was already off on the next thing. So the Rough Draft EP is head and shoulders above what a lot of people in the space were doing. And then of course, unfortunately there's Donuts, which is more than a beat tape, more than an instrumental project. It kind of transcended both of those ideas. I mean, when you think about what people did going back for like the instrumental beat project. And then you think, all right, after you go through the DJ shadows, DJ crushes of the world, what have you, you think that there's no more room for elevation. And then JD, AKA Jay Dilla completely says, oh no, you don't, you don't think so. And then he drops Donuts, which is one of the most influential projects of the past 15 plus years. And it kind of, you know, helped people understand what was going on with like the beat culture wave that happened in the uh, mid zeros going forward. What a superb breakdown from Dart Adams right there, especially on how Dilla's hookup with BBE changed his whole trajectory. Dilla's own words in the album liner notes to Welcome to Detroit say it all. He says, originally, I went in this project to produce a breakbeat LP. What happened? BBE basically told me to do whatever I wanted to do. Uh-oh. 
all caps. And although Diller's sound had been crafted in the city of Detroit, which Diller himself called a lot more experimental and open-minded, where the hip-hop's more creative than violent because it had been influenced by all different kinds of music, it would be a different country entirely that would help boost Diller's attempt to stand out from the crowd of his peers with the first album in this run, Welcome to Detroit. And that country was the UK. Let Dan Charnas break it down for you. The UK plays a pivotal role, not only in that album, but in James Yancey's career. How does this all fit in? Well, James Yancey is sort of toiling in the UMA and doing a lot of work for not, I think, what he feels and his friends feel is the right amount of credit. In the midst of this, he puts out a homemade album by his group Slum Village called Fantastic. Fantastic is an, a rhythmic advancement. It garners him and Slum Village a deal with a major label, a and Records. And they make this album all throughout 1998. And it is on this album, which will be called Fantastic Volume 2, that also reflects this sudden shift to really straight and swung colliding in very, very jarring ways. So it's that B-tape I told you about, Another Batch, which was 1998. And it's this album. And I think the reason that it's happening is because this is when James finally buys his MPC. And it's the MPC that allows that to happen. You cannot do that on an an SP-1200, which is what he made running on. And uh, I think he he probably even made sometimes on that. Fantastic Volume 2 will not come out for another two years, but it is very influential in the small circles around James. And that is what brings him into Electric Lady, has him working with The Roots, with D'Angelo, and then finally with common. He is sort of trying to distance himself a little bit from the UMA, and he finally has this conversation with Q-Tip at the beginning of two, I think the beginning of 1999. He finally says, I just want people to know it's me. And it's a very difficult thing for James to do. He, it, it took him three years, really, to have that conversation. Because how do you tell your mentor, the guy who plucked you out of obscurity, that you don't want to be in business with him? James had to be very conflicted about that. He finally has the conversation. No sooner does he have the conversation. First of all, it takes a while for everybody to catch up to the fact that he's not in the UMA. While he's working on Common, he's still technically part of the UMA, but he's also being subsumed into this other unofficial collective called the Soul Quarians. Every credit on Common's album, like Water for Chocolate, for the, like the six or seven tracks that James did, he's credited as produced by the Soul Quarians JD for the UMA. He's bookended in brotherhood. He's smothered in brotherhood. And while he's being smothered in brotherhood, Music Soul Child is coming out with a record using his style. And uh, High Tech and Quali are coming out with a record using his style. It is around this time, he, he ha- makes his first trip to Europe in May of 1999. And he goes to the Netherlands and he goes to the UK. And in the UK, he is introduced to some very important record executives. But he also has his first interview with Giles Peterson. And he's also introduced to a fellow by the name of Peter Adarkwa. Peter Adarkwa runs a small label, the aptly named BBE, Barely Breaking Even. And he does DJ compilations. He doesn't own any music. He just licenses music and has a DJ brand. He meets JD when he's in London and he says, I would really love to do an album of instrumental beats with you. And so they hammer out what is a very modest deal for James to do an album of instrumentals. But when Peter Darkwa goes to Detroit at the end of 99 from London, first of all, he's never seen a city like this ever. It's surreal and a bit scary to him. He quickly understands 
and encourages that James is actually going to make a solo album. JD is going to make a solo album and he's going to sing, he's going to MC, and he's going to have some guests on it. Welcome to Detroit is born out of Peter Adarkwa, this, this British music entrepreneur's belief that James Yancey, JD, is more than just this cool little beat producer. It's the first time anybody deliberately invests money in James' own particular vision and the first time that he is going to be solo credited on something with intention, right? Yeah. There have been some, you know, other, like House Shoes had put out a record in 96 of, of remixes, you know, uh, that JD had done that had never come out. But this is really like his first full-length solo work. That is what will become Welcome to Detroit. But there are also some other things going on at this time. JD, because of the Common Album, is now enjoying his first hit in America an R&B hit, not a pop hit, called The Light. And MCA is now offering him an even bigger deal. So that's in the wing. Meanwhile, there's another American producer named Jermaine Dupree oh, yeah. who starts using JD as a nickname for himself. And so it's like all of this music is coming out that's influenced by him. He barely gets his name back. And then he has to share it with this guy, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... That is when J.D. starts to use his professional moniker, J. Dilla. It's a nickname that Common gives to him. The first place you see it used is on Welcome to Detroit. So it represents a break with the past. It, think about his credit on Common's album. Produced by the Soulquarians, J.D. for the UMA. He's leaving it all behind. He's going to become J. Dilla. He's going to be the star of his own album. Mm. And then he's going to do another album for MCA. And so we can talk a little bit about the making of the album, but when he finishes the album and he comes back to London mm -hmm. for the first time in two years, in February 2001, he is interviewed by Ross Allen. He's interviewed by Giles Peterson. Mm -hmm. He gives two of the most extensive interviews of his career because these are guys who actually, again, see him as here, whereas the American press, yeah. hip-hop press, is ignoring him. And he declares on the BBC, he says, I don't ever want to use a Fender Rhodes again if I don't have to. I'm going to keep changing my sound. That's my word. Mm. You'll never see me stay in the same place again. And that is, it's, it's like, it's a really important moment for him. Mm. And it is also a fantastic album, a, real, a, a, a snapshot of him in this joyous moment, stepping out to become himself in early 2001. Smothered in brotherhood. Dan nailed it with that, and it was this Soulquarians tag that Dilla tussled with way before his second album that dropped five years later. JD wanted to address these attitudes towards his music and sensibilities, and he did so with 2003's Rough Draft. His move away from the backpack crowd and soft sound was evident. This was street corner music that sounded straight from the cassette. Here's Dilla in his own words speaking to Double XL in 2004 about making that show shift. That tag automatically put us in the tribe category. That was actually a category we didn't want to be in. The audience we were trying to give to were actually people we hung around. I hung around regular ass Detroit cats, not the backpack shit. I guess that's how the beats came off on some smooth type of shit. And this may be why Rough Draft is in my top three Dilla projects, probably. Something about the brashness and harshness of it all, it just feels a lot more uncompromising. And like Dilla is letting out all of his frustrations, perhaps 
Perhaps it was Dylan's 2001 visit to Dr. Dre's Vanguard studio that helped put James on this alternate path away from something he had total mastery over, sampling. Discarding the craft for live instrumentation and therefore sidestepping sample clearance issues led to a new dimension to the now well-known JD sound. So, on Rough Draft, be it the incredibly thugged out one-two punch of Make'em Envy in the Money or Dilla's sonic stamp of the siren that would reoccur in Donuts, James Yancey went into an utterly more masculine turn to break out of the moulds the industry was laying down for him. With his chain swinging in the booth like extra percussion, Jay Dilla had a motherfucking right to shine. He paid his dues. So let's hear how Dan sees Rough Draft's impact and how it would lead into Dilla's work with other greats like Madlib and Fortet. Jump to Rough Draft, mm -hmm. which comes out two years later after he's sort of been through this whole MCA debacle and he's abandoned samples because he's in the in the commercial space. Rough Draft shows him creating something super quick to get a little money from a German distributor, a stuff that he likes. And he says at the beginning of the EP, he says it's straight from the motherfucking cassette, uh, real live shit to play in your car. And so everything is jagged. The seams are not joined in that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there is still evidence of his time sense, but there is no pretense of high fidelity in it at all. And still some amazing creative things. It's funny. I would actually say, because I, I think of JD's output, not in terms of the commercially released albums all the time, but also in terms of his batches. How do we track J. Dilla's musical evolution? Mm. Welcome Detroit is, again, that sort of the crescendo of the JD era and the beginning of the J. Dilla era, like JD at his peak. Then there's this period of time where we kind of don't hear from him as much. And that's because he's working on his MCA album. He's working on Electric Circus. Yes. Uh, he's working on Frank and Dank's album. And all of those projects in some ways are sabotaged. Frank and Dank, because he makes this incredible album with samples and he decides he wants to take the samples out. Yeah. His MCA album, he's not producing it. He's getting other producers to come in and give him beats. He runs out of money and MCA won't give him any money to finish it. And that doesn't come. Mm. And Electric Circus uh, is this sort of, and I understand it, right? The Soquarians wanting to go deep into fantasy land, mm. deep into Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, psychedelic, right? Yeah. But there's very little songwriting on it. So that's one of the reasons that people have a hard time latching onto it, because the songwriting is not need something to sing along to or rap along to. And there wasn't a lot on that album. This isn't to say there wasn't good work on there. Mm -hmm. So we don't hear from JD for about two years. And then Rough Draft debuts as this EP in Europe. He's come back to sampling, right? Super raw. And then what do we hear after that, right? We hear what he's doing for J-Lib which is, you know, very much sort of in the same vein, I think very sort of rough draft mm -hmm. era influence. You also have like these in interesting little one-offs like Serious Is Your Life remix for Fortet and then the Blue yeah. Note Obligato remix. So you're seeing this sort of a little bit of that high production value thing with the sort of gritty J-Libby kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then we get to Donuts. Ah, oh, what an achingly perfect record this is. Whereas Welcome to Detroit and Rough Draft's artistic shifts were more in your face, Donuts managed to be deceiving because of the sheer subtlety, nuance, and variation in the production. But Donuts represented more than just an album. It brought out a thousand and one theories about what each song meant and what Dilla was trying to say about death, life, and morality. Or maybe he didn't mean any of that at all. In fact, Dilla in 2005 called it a 
compilation of stuff I thought was a little too much for MCs. Me flipping records that people don't know how to rap on, but they want to rap on. As art director of Stone's Throw and key figure in helping realise the Donuts album itself, Jeff Jank puts it in the book 33 and 3rd by Jordan Ferguson. He says Donuts has proven itself as a great work of art because it's open to theories like that. Dilla went from being his own person with a lot of privacy to being the public's person. The public discussion about the work is part of it. Yes, this masterpiece of fleeting patchwork thoughts and feelings that may escape you at first distills so much emotion into a short time frame that the impact is wholly different to any other kind of hip-hop. A record laden with a beauty of errors from abrasively weird songs like Twister and Anti-American Graffiti to hauntingly painful cuts like Don't Cry, Waves and Time Donor of the Heart, Dilla's landmark album has been lauded since its arrival in 2006. But here's Dan explaining why he thinks there were musical steps before Donuts that deserve to be talked about in Dilla's canon after his move to LA. The next big thing for me after that, after he moves to LA, is not Donuts. It's the Dill Withers CD. The Dill Withers what CD. people now call the Motown tape. Yeah. That is the debut of his answer to Kanye and to Mad Lib. Like, oh, so y'all are just chopping anything up? Mm. Watch this. And a lot of the stuff on the Dill Withers tape will end up on The Shining, or some of it will end up on The Shining. Mm -hmm. Some of it will end up on the records of people like Steve Spacek and Q-Tip. Then in early 2005, when he gets out of the hospital, that's when he creates the first Donut CD, which is Dilla now applying himself to Pro Tools as a music-making machine. And it's a very different sound from an MPC. Still broken and blue, so to speak. But very different from Dill Withers. Like the Stone Throw people love it. They are interested in the more artsy, adventurous, angular, instrumental side of hip hop. Even though they love JD's beats, they love running. They're not trying to dangle, oh, make running for us. It's like they believe that a beat maker is an artist in and of himself or herself. And so Donuts is the, the eventual release of Donuts is that thought form made concrete. We believe in the art artistry of the, the producer, period. Mm. No MCs needed. In that time period, that last year of his life, 2005, he's really not working on donuts. He's working on this album, Welcome to LA, which is supposed to be the sequel to Welcome to Detroit. Welcome to LA will become The Shining um, as he gets sick. Mm. And he engages as he did before, Kareem Riggins helped out on Welcome to Detroit. So he engages him on The Shining. J-Rock becomes a creative partner. But the album is really not done when he dies. So Kareem kind of has to finish it. And what's interesting about Kareem finishing that album, The Shining, which comes out a few months after Dilla's death, is that two of the most popular songs on that album were not made in LA in that last year of his life. They were made at least two or three years earlier in Michigan. Dime Piece and Won't Do. And you notice like Won't Do is like this incredibly bubbly, futuristic landscape of a song that has, is a tour de force of James. It very much feels like, it almost feels like, you know, what would come after Welcome to Detroit. Yeah. Or what might have been on that MCA album if James had produced it himself. <sighs> it's heavy to think about this stuff. I feel heavy talking about it because... 
my own career in the music business was filled with coulda, shoulda, wouldas, albums that should have come out, but didn't. And if it could have come out and it would have come out, then it would have done well. But also James was of this character where like, if he did it two seconds ago, it was old, you know, Mm. Um, he was relentless in the way that he masticated time. He did work and then he stepped away from it. I love the idea of the three album run because I think Mm. it comes to us from from rock, you know, it comes mm-hmm. to us from, oh, you know, the Beatles, three albums, Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, those yeah. three albums, you really, you really get like what's the most important things about the Beatles happen in those three albums. Mm-hmm. Some people don't even get to three album albums. They don't. Know, they really don't. I, they really don't. Now, a quick detour to hear from a fellow rap nerd and podcaster, Dano from Free Music Empire. He speaks on why this album run is so special and how other great producers see the actual importance of JD manipulating time. Check it. Dano from Free Music Empire. Today is a special day because I get to talk about Jay Dilla. Donuts was the first instrumental hip-hop album that I fell in love with. Jay Dilla is uh, the master of time and space, right? People want to know about Detroit hip-hop and the sound of Detroit hip-hop. The place to start is the Sterling Tolls interview with Dad Bod Rap Pod, where he says that the legacy of Detroit hip-hop is experimenting with time signatures, with different time signatures. I got a chance to talk to Raffi, the producer from from Bruiser Brigade. One of the first things I asked him was about that Sterling Tolls quote. I said, what do you, why do you think Detroit's legacy is experimenting with these time signatures, weird forms of time? The answer that Rafi posited was that techno in Detroit is on the radio. It's just present, but so is classic soul, right? Detroit soul. So that mixture of soul and techno creates an entirely different flavor that that Jay Dilla seems to perfectly signify. In America, when we listened to Dizzy Rascal when he first came out, we didn't know what the fuck was going on. But it was because London, the UK, had 40,000 subgenres of electronic dance music that had merged into the production identity. So those beats sounded alien to us. Jay Dilla sounded alien at the time, but that sound became what we know Detroit for. And it's incredibly regional and beautiful in everything hip hop. Love you, Jay Dilla. Always. Amazing stuff that again grounds our understanding of Dilla's work in relation to his home city. Now, back to Dan to speak on Dilla's response to people perhaps biting his style. His career poses such a lofty question. What is the real-time value of having your sound mimicked and become widespread throughout music if nobody really knows who you are and there is no monetary value let's check in with dan on that with people kind of like copycatting his sound so mark jackson's butterflies is out flower tree have been around uh yeah these rhythmic patterns as you said are emerging at dark child is mining is mining those drums for dilla how did he react to that emulation of his of his work not good um <laughs> and i say it because he thought of himself like a beat maker He said to a journalist a few years later, all I know how to do is work the MPC. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what I'm doing with all these great musicians because all I do, I know how to do is work the MPC. Meanwhile, the musicians are looking at him like, oh my God, you're the God, right? (laughs) And so the disconnect there is he just doesn't know that he's not simply a beat maker. 
He doesn't understand the jump that he's made. So he's still thinking like, oh, why is all these people sound like me? Well, all these people sound like you because you've done something that is so jarring, so exciting. And obviously people want, they want that rhythm. They want that sound. You know, when he hears Got Till It's Gone, you know, by Janet Jackson, he feels some kind of way about it. He feels some kind of way about it so much that he starts telling people that he did it because that's him. That's his style. And he can't even be JD at that point. He's only the Uma. His, his friends back in Detroit are making fun of him. They're like, oh, here comes the Uma. Hey, nice Damn. to see you, Uma. Like calling him, him the Uma Damn. as a way to sort of support him. But still, right. Mm hmm. You know, there was another thing that Soul Shock and Carlin did, uh, Dan these Danish hip hop producers. They sort of took all of his drum sounds for the, the remix he did for the far side of the song called Why mm -hmm. and used it in this Tupac song called Do For Love. Yes. Mm. He's doubtlessly hearing this stuff coming, you know, the high tech stuff mm. uh, and the Philadelphia stuff. And so he, his response is, I got to innovate the next thing. And again, this is just my personal opinion. I'm not sure that any innovation he made after that quite matches up to the centenary, yeah. you know, hundred year kind of innovation of dilettante. But they are innovations. What you're seeing in Welcome to Detroit is you're seeing some of the most severe deployments of his time since, like pause and come get it. Like mm. those are like... Oh. Yeah. I said they're like a, the equivalent of watching a train derail and write itself over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then he's also doing instrumental stuff. He does a, a, a really incredible cover mm. of uh, Donald Byrd's Think Twice. He does some other just incredible MC work on that album, other incredible hard tracks, like just super duper hard hip hop, interesting uh, veering off into traditional instrumentation. And it's a warm album. It's very, if you love that warm JD Uma sound, you're getting it on mm -hmm. Welcome to Detroit. No, no doubt. Even though I'm not sure there's a Fender Rhodes. <laughs> I'm not sure there is a Fender Rhodes on, on, on Welcome to Detroit, but there doesn't need to be. But it's a wonderful hi-fi experience. Hey, what's up? This is Black Thought, and you are now rocking with the Crate 808 Podcast. Yo, 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 yo. This is Stretch Armstrong. Ooh-wee! My name is Bobby Garcia, a.k.a. Cool Bob Love. You're now listening to Crate 808. Hey, yo, what up, y'all? This is Prince Paul, and you're rocking with Crate 808 Podcast. Yo, it's EV Evidence, Dilated Peoples. You're rocking with the Crate 808 Podcast, my favorite shit. Let's go. Yo, what's going on, y'all? This is Master Ace from Brooklyn, New York, and you're checking out the Crate Great 808 podcast, real hip hop. We talked about the albums as a trajectory and how he, how incredible they were for the evolution of hip hop, let alone Dilla's work himself. Mm. For yourself, we have a few categories. So if we go through these albums, most rewindable moments in an album, uh, mm. hidden gems like tracks that or moments in an album or tracks that you think that maybe that deserves a bit more love and or five mic moments of perfection to you that you think that is just perfect it's a five mic mm. moment but if we go to welcome to detroit to begin with is there anything on right. that well let's talk about hidden gems i love the song shake it down oh. uh it doesn't get a lot of play that track was a mistake it says in your book, shake it down no. was done by mistake. James says, so no liar Luke, the first thing that Neil touched and happy ass folk song shit, just my right. luck trying to be funny. I filtered the loop and it came out. It right. was shake it down, which is right. So it was more knew. random than a mistake. He was trying to challenge himself. He had, he said he had a beat block, right? Mm -hmm. So he's like, okay, let me get in the studio. I got to do something. 
Mm-hmm. Again, look at that work ethic. That's some Detroit <laughs> shit right there. Puts it down. It is this happy ass little folk thing. He filters it, but he mm-hmm. puts this incredible beat behind it. And then he does this verse. It's just like chickens be tricking to get their hair done. Yeah, son. Is there what? Like <laughs> just incredible rhythmic genius. So that's the hidden gem. Love that. Obviously, I think pause is <sighs> so wonderful because it's Frank and Dank's kind of coming out party. And I had to ask Frank the other week, I'm like, how did you think of that alphabet shit? How did you think the spelling the names out? Right. You know? And Frank raps that like he's freaking it's biggie level. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Such yeah. confidence. And that's forever, forever a champion for, for that song. Yeah, I love uh, it. And Dank, Dank as well. I think the rewindable moment on that album is the is the shout outs at the end. Yeah, thank you. One, <laughs> one as well is another one where the shout outs and the, oh, one for me is just one of my favorite. That's a five mic moment, one generally, just have to shout. Because yeah. that beat is, as you said, the warmth and everything that come before is encapsulated that little moment of where he just, yeah. he, he does that on Rough Draft on shouts. I think it's the alternate version. He does something yeah. very similar. Oh, I love them. I love them little yeah. moments. It's little yeah. moments that like he's playing the Bee Gees, man. And he's on his way to the strip club, which is hugely important. Again, it's something we didn't get to cover, but the strip club was hugely important to Dilla. And they're just yeah. playing the Bee Gees in the back. And what Bee Gees, those moments, man, for me, just, oof, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if we go into Rough Draft or Donuts, any hidden gems that you mm. think may deserve a bit more shine or just moments that, you know, are just perfect? I mean, obviously, uh, nothing like this. You know, I think that's uh, a real... A real classic, completely unlike anything he'd done before or since. I remember when I played that and my mate said to me, that's not hip hop. I was like, that is, is Jade's it. What? He's like, that's not even hip hop. What's it on doing this? And it does hit you like that sometimes. Sorry to interrupt, but I just have to say you're right. No, it's rare, but that hip hop is, is syncretic. It draws everything into it. So hip hop sounds very different from record to record and from artist to artist. Uh, the hidden gem on Rough Draft for me is always wild, which is Neil Ennis, because I, I love Neil Ennis because of the Ruddles. It's Neil Ennis, his son, I believe, singing and playing the drums on the song, uh, Come On, Feel the Noise, which is by Slade. Yeah, um, this is mad. So he's like, you know, this is my Slade song. <laughs> and that's what James samples for a while. And to me, that's just like, you know, it's it's the greatest. You know, when you talk about like um, in the book, especially you do it really well, like how Dilla has such an incredible way of manipulating samples and morphing them and morphing the message mm. of that original sample into something yeah. completely different, right? And I love, and Donuts is a masterwork of all of that, right? But yeah. I always used to think he said, this is my slave song. And I was like, oh my God, that is, you know, the, this quite a fun track in a weird way. And then he go, that's, this is my slave song. I was like, whoa, what? That's another level of, and, wow. and, you know, as you, as you get older. But you, realize- we don't know what James was hearing either, right? Like when the whole thing about Fade Me in the 10CC record, right? Yes. Is it, is it, did he hear it as save? Mm. I don't know. I really don't know. And that's, of course, that's the, those are the kinds of unanswered questions in art that need, that sort of will always remain unanswered. And that's why art is, a, you know, an interactive uh, process. One thing that's been a fascinating prevailing factor in this album run is the actual myth-making of James Yancey that has been spun since his work became the public's to make sense of. So we had to ask Dan to break down some of the biggest ones and perhaps try understand why Dilla himself helped fuel these stories. 
And one of the amazing things about seeing this book, you know, when you release a piece of work into the world, it doesn't belong to you anymore. Mm-hmm. My book does not belong to me anymore. It belongs to all y'all. And I, I think the thing that is surprising, the most surprising to me, is how people read the book. Some people, not all people, but some people will read the book and they will go read right past things in order to preserve whatever myth they hold or their own personal predilections and beliefs. It's astounding. You know? Wow. It's kind of scary. Um, it is a little scary. I think it's also a, you know, a product of our times. It's also a, a big book, right? So I think mm. it also speaks to people being able to closely read something. I took four years to write the book. I certainly can't expect y'all to read it in any less than four years. So, uh, you know, okay. So the myths, I think the biggest one, of course, was the got till it's gone Mm. uh, song because he literally said, I produced it. He told friends that he produced it. He told interviewers, nudged them a little bit like, you hear, what is it? Does it sound like an Uma record? You know, my reporting does not bear any of that out. And so then the question is why why would he have lied? And I think the answer is there. He was somewhat passive aggressive. He was not a person who spoke up um, Mm. in ways that were very confrontational for the most part. And Mm. I think it was his passive aggressive way of kind of getting back at Tim, you know, Mm. frankly. And that's going to be hard for some people to think about, to think about Dilla as somebody who doesn't always tell the truth. There was this whole narrative of him that he's humble. Yes, he was quiet and he could be polite. He was quiet and unassuming. He didn't take up space in a room like Kanye. Kanye wants to own every room he walks into. Mm. James safe space is hanging in the corner and watching all y'all. James is just going to watch and listen, but he was not humbled. This is a man who knew his worth. He was extremely competitive. He was fucking furious when people took his shit. Mm. You know, (laughs) he's not humble. And, And again, so what? So what? So what he didn't produce God till it's gone. Yeah. So what that he wasn't this humble, sweet little, you know, yeah, muffin yeah. of a guy. It doesn't make him any less of a good person, any less of a genius, any less of a human being. Like mm. for real, y'all, get it together. <laughs> and, and, you know, him doing donuts in the hospital bed. I mean, people have been quietly saying this the whole time. Uh, well, you know, donuts was kind of done before he went back into the hospital and, and people don't want to hear it. Yeah. They don't want to hear it. And and that, that goes for the posthumous stuff too. You know, there's mm. certain things that people want to believe and people want to act like he doesn't have daughters. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? It's fascinating when you think about it that way and what it says about the human condition and going full circle, like a donut, back to the book, which is about the humanity to this culture that we have, you know, like the process of growing up and mm-hmm. how you grow up and the lineage of maybe even his father had a song credit on on, a, on songs that maybe he should be credited for. The myths, they don't need myths when you have such an incredible story like that anyway. Now, before we move into the final album of this incredible run, I want to bring in podcaster Chief from Weird Rap to speak on Donuts and The Shining. So let's get his perspective on what this run means to him. Donuts is probably outside of On the Corner by Miles Davis, the only album without lyrics that I know front to back, like an album with lyrics. 
like I know when this phrase is gonna switch up to the next phrase and I know where he sprinkles all the little samples in and I hear the mistakes and it's just really interesting like how deeply I've connected with Donuts even though it doesn't have traditional lyrics in it and then uh, The Shining kept getting delayed I remember expecting The Shining to be what it was supposed to be which was Dilla Beats with samples from the movie The Shining that they ended up not being able to clear uh, it has songs on it I really like like uh, Two Is Not Enough is a really cool song uh, We Must Be In Love with Farrell Munch is super dope uh, I like the Black Thought song that was on there a lot and then by the time the Rough Draft came out it's like damn I wish this would have dropped when it was supposed to because that would have been on the heels of what he was doing with Slum Village and that shit would have hit beautifully some very good points there. Imagine if they'd cleared those samples for Kubrick's Shining clips. It would have been a different beast altogether. But the fact a lyricless album like Donuts could be such an incredible landmark for the movements like lo-fi hip-hop cannot be denied. But now let's talk about the highlights on The Shining that still stand up today. You can only imagine the resonance this album could have had if only they used Dilla's idea to make the cover of it a picture of him in hospital with a plastic respirator mask on but with five mic moments of perfection like won't do and love on there jay Dilla showcased that he could still produce incredible hip-hop with a traditional song structure harnessing a myriad of different artists on his own music but let's get back to dan to see his thoughts on the shining throw in some more highlights off of donuts speak on the fact that Dilla is a dope mc and dispel yet another notion i had of james yancey and his link up with pharaoh monch so the last two then, Donuts and The Shining, incredibly hard on some of that Donuts, which I see as a series of five miles. It is just front to back kind of perfect to me. But yeah. yeah where, I mean, where Don- Donuts is its own thing. I mean, I think I'm drawn to certain moments in, in Donuts. The opening strands of uh, Stop, you know, when you mm-hmm. first hear that Dionne Warwick thing and the Jadakiss, that's just a moment. But also what he calls, I think he calls it Welcome to the Show. It's the one with the motherload sample on it. Even though it's a fanfare, right? Mm-hmm. He's talking about death on Shining. It's, you know, for me, it's, it's won't do is just this unbelievable piece of work. People always talk about Donuts as his requiem. But, you know, won't do really is like future James to me. Mm-hmm. He's singing. He's rapping. He's doing this incredible melodic work, this incredible rhythmic work, this incredible sonic work. Mm. It's a it's a soundscape, uh, and it's a great song, mm. uh, and it's also totally James James wanting five women at once. One won't do. Yeah, two won't do. That's true. Right. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought the thing about The Shining that I know it gets maligned for, you know, being 75% done. But, you know, big up Jeff Jank, by the way, before we move on, because Jeff Jank doing this work on Donuts was huge. For Shining, for me, it did showcase him as, I can actually make Pharaoh Munch sound like this. And I know Pharaoh had done a few things like that, but not Mm -hmm. as good as he did on The Shining. I'm thinking of an incredibly verbose and intricate Rhymer, oh my god, you're actually blowing me away with your voice now, just singing. Yeah, a little, a little story that did not make it into the book. Let's go. That I will tell you, and this is this is House Shoes' story. So House Shoes sort of owns the story. James, I guess, had sent that track to Pharaoh Munch and Love, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, that was the um, uh, uh, Impressions track, Curtis Mayfield track, right? Mm-hmm. And that was from Dill Withers. That was from that mixtape, right? So it started on Dill Withers, and he gave it to Pharaoh Munch. Pharaoh Munch sent it back 
with this sort of singing thing happening on it. And Dilla, I think he liked it, but he looked at shoes and he's like, that is not what I wanted from him, bro. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, Mythbusters. Oh, no, Mythbusters. Oh, no. No, he was expecting Pharaoh. Like, yeah, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Top five dead or alive, you know? Yeah. But I also think if Pharaoh Munch had done anything else on it, it wouldn't be the great song that it is. So yes. Pharaoh Munch also, he knows, he knows what to do. And so he did it. Yes, perfect, perfect way to put it. The creativity, though, there's still creativity there. I don't know any people who just put a, a kazoo orchestra in the middle of a... This kind of stuff, he was still doing that kind of thing. And anyone who says that Dilla can't rap, listen to him saying, chain swinging like his... Bring extra- them to me, man. <laughs> I did this, is the, the, you know, and I, I guess the one feeling that I... I was sort of limited as to how I could tackle him as an MC mm-hmm. in the book because number one, you'd have to use a lot of lyrics. Mm-hmm. That means intellectual property, and you know, we have to sort of restrict the For use sure. of lyrics. But it also, a book is not a great way to analyze that. I would put JD up against any MC. Period. Like here we go. If I could hear him rap on something, like, and he always, as Jason Moran says, he always faced the beat. I don't know if it was Jason who pointed this out. Somebody pointed it out in that song, uh, McNasty Phil from oh, J-Lib. Oh, my God. You know, when he goes, Frank Dank Dilla, dank, 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 dank. And I never noticed until it was pointed out to me recently that he is mimicking what the hi-hat is doing. <laughs> On McNasty Phil? Oh, my God. Yeah. Listen to it. Yo. Damn. And he also does it again. He does it again on on Untitled, right? That boom, boom, tick with the kick and the mm-hmm. snare. You know, mm-hmm. you can't can't stop, can't, can't quit. Yes. Always facing the beat. Always facing the beat, as Jason Moran rightly says. Incredible MC. That's the next book. The next book is just that. Just talk about the lyrics. Let's go. I love how my dudes are already planning my next book. <laughs> <laughs> it's just got to be more Dilla. That's all we want. No, man, no, no. You, you've got, you've got, you've got, you've got, you've done enough in this one, definitely. You talk about Dilla's basement before we move in, though. I've got to ask you because sure. I love the the whole idea of environments in hip hop. So I think Bum B talked about like uh, when UGK came out that you know the car wash was massive where they were, and that's where the community was. And then you have the corner, and then you have the streets. And Detroit has basements, and I find it really interesting how the music sounds different because as well they do make it in a basement. Can you just describe Dilla's basement to me? What I remember is is just sort of images. So I remember driving up. Uh, to Conant Gardens, parking on on McDougal, which mm. is this side street off of the main drag Nevada, and the front door of the house faces Nevada. There's a barren field across from the house, mm. and I remember parking along that, and then seeing. I guess we were told to knock on that side door, the white door. So it's this one story red brick ranch house with a white door right in the in the middle of it. You walk in the door. To the right is the kitchen. Then there's steps downstairs to the left. When we got down there, common sense was down there, just <laughs> hanging out. Like, just oh, what's common sense doing here? I remember it being relatively dark. There was a bar on the northern side of the room where he put his drum machines and mm-hmm. turntables. And for most of the time, he was standing behind that. And while he and Chino talked, I just kind of walked around the room a bit, you know, looking at, at the records that were on the south side of the room. The, the walls were wood paneled. Um, it was very... Humble, mm. very, very humble. Marine reminded me that there were some seats around the edges of the almost like uh, built-in seats. 
yeah. around the edge of the basement. At least that's what she she had told me because she ran a daycare down there right. for many years. So he had to share that that space amazing. with his mom and kids. That's interesting to think, right? That's how amazing. Ma- how many children were yeah. in that space? It's another thing. Like every, <laughs> it's funny. Just like thinking about that now, the energetic properties of that space because children were in it mm. so much. He was playing for sure. We talked about the Beatles. Get Back came out. Uh, they have an eight-hour documentary of this period. We would all take mm. an eight-hour doc on Diller. Of course we would. But which era, which project would you want this eight-hour doc to be around? Oh, one? Yeah. Or like just like a, a, a little small window in the Diller. I guess I have. My God. That's really an unfair question. I, I mean, <laughs> I've got my answer. That's the thing. I, I would love to, I would, uh, number one, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for the recording of Fantastic Volume 2. Yes. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Welcome to Detroit actually is probably the one that has the best documentation. You know, Peter Darkwood just recently did that package, the 10th anniversary package with, uh, you know, the oral history of the album. A very dark documentary would be the Frank and Dank and the MCA solo albums. Yeah. Right? Just yeah. how those two things fell apart. And then Donuts is the movie. <laughs> I'd right? like to, Donuts yeah. and The Shining are the movie. That is that is the mythic tale of Jay Dilla. Is that why you think he became so popular after, after he left us? I think there's definitely a theory and a strain of thought that says if Dilla hadn't died, he wouldn't have attained sort of the popularity he has. You know... I feel two ways about this. Before he died, his, his rhythmic influence, Dilla Time, was already pervading popular music. There's mm. absolutely no question about it. I think it would have continued to be influential. If James had not gotten sick, I think James would have continued to innovate in ways that we can scarcely even conceive. I actually believe that James Yancey could continue to evolve. He didn't just have one thing up his sleeve. Time put pressure on him as he got sick to continue to just try to do as much work as as he could while he could there's a lot there's a lot of good opportunities for for seeing into his his process i was thinking with this book it's very comprehensive god man you incorporate what music science you incorporate technology urban mm-hmm. city planning history of america and the history of pop music and history of hip hop music in america i think it's just been a very amazing journey to see how one young boy has grown up to then do all of what he did, and then you translate it and synthesize it all into this kind of, I don't know, there's just so much feeling, man. It's incredibly open, people. You will see honesty in there. I think fairness, a very human story. Humans are fallible. Humans are multidimensional, and they are all those things in this. And I just want to say thank you, Dan, man, because some of this history could be lost or lost to the annals of memory, where sometimes we don't remember. Was that a rumor? Was that a myth? So to have it finally collated and the interviews you have on there, I just want to say thank you, man, because just to celebrate this history has been documented, man. Absolutely, man. Yeah. It's really lovely of you to say that. And frankly, you know, I, I I do feel a certain responsibility, right? There could have been a shorter version of this book, I realize. I tend to write long anyway, but I also felt like there 
there are a couple of things going on there. First of all, there's a vital constituency. There are a couple of vital constituencies I needed to serve. And even though I wanted to explain Dilettante to the rest of the world, the book had to read uh, in many ways as a story. I also had to really answer some questions that Dilla fans have had yeah. for a long time. I couldn't not go into the details of uh, Gotha What's Gone and things like that. But also because I think not only musicians lately, Black musicians especially, and hip-hop musicians, you know, in particular, yeah. do not get grand historical contextual treatments. Mm. So I felt like if anybody from our world deserved that mm. and could live up to that, I thought it was James Yancey. So I just did it. How we did it, we did it big. We had to do it big. It does make you feel like this Dilla month in 2022 has been special. It feels special, and you're part of that, man. Thank you so much, Dan, for bringing just this love, just the passion, just the insight. Yeah, man, it's just been amazing. I wish we could go even longer, just talk about Dilla and get into the, you know, get into the degree. But I appreciate you. We'll let come us- back next February, and we'll talk about Fantastic <laughs> Volume Two. Yeah, let's do it. I'm here. Let's do it, man. Next Dilla month, let's do it. But I was going to actually ask you about like uh, what's next for you. I know you'd probably not even want to think what's next. Rest. But... <laughs> Rest is next. Well, I will say this, that Dilla Time is now going to be released by Swift uh, Swift Press in Britain. You know, UK Dilla fans should be super proud of their role in this story. I would not have been able to tell the kind of story I had told without people like Giles Peterson and Ross Allen. Y'all saw things that Americans weren't seeing. And so that's a great great thing. It's something to be hugely proud of. So I look forward to dialoguing more about Dilla with with his people. Yeah, man. Oh, man. I was going to end on a little thing I remember from your book where you said um, there was a woman who was looking at his drum machine and she was just crying at the glass Mm -hmm. case. And we don't know how far and how impactful this music is except for our own our own little feelings and stuff like that mm-hmm. so to mm-hmm. hear and see your account of people who she'll never probably be able to even articulate what that song what their music right. meant so yeah be- beautiful work there Dan beautiful work so before you go last question ask everyone before they leave Dan what is the last great piece of music you've heard could be old could be new just the last great piece of music oh man well i will say this i've spent a lot of time recently with nancy wilson and cannonball adderley's album i think it's from the early 1960s right but that uh, such it's i mean talk about a great piece of work mm-hmm. um but also hiatus coyote's album which is nominated for a, a grammy this year um, oh, wow. valiant it's a fantastic piece of work but i'm actually looking forward to listening to more new music because i've been in the past for the last <laughs> four years i wrote a 90s podcast i love 90s hip-hop obviously but yeah. after a while you're like oh god there's a lot of shouty choruses in the 90s I want to just, <laughs> a lot. Yeah, as, a lot. as my old boss rick rubin once said a lot of jumping <laughs> a lot of jumping <laughs> There is a lot of jumping. Oh, Dad, bless you, man. Thank you so much. Right, Good luck so with whatever you do. And yeah, doors are open. Anytime you want to jump on, man, let us know. Thank you, brother. Wicked. Peace, bro. Peace. <laughs> this was a Crate 808 production, co-produced by Intricate Management, all music supplied by Grindhouse Music. <laughs> <laughs>